The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Welcome to Spirit Matters, where we explore matters of the spirit with leading experts from across the spiritual spectrum, all designed to enrich and enlarge your wisdom, deepen your joy and peace, and awaken your inner connection to the divine. Here's your host, Philip Goldberg. Greetings, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to the new Spirit Matters, the reboot of the uh, podcast I co-hosted with Dennis Ramundi for many years. Uh, And I should let you know that that iteration with its uh, 300 or so interviews remains available at our archive at spiritmatterstalk.com and the YouTube channel. And um, please go and listen and watch the uh, interviews with extraordinary human beings. It's all free. And as is this new version, which continues the uh, tradition of having conversations with a diverse range of uh, brilliant people about spirituality and its various forms today. I'm happy to have with us Ruth Harris, a senior research fellow and professor of European history at All Souls College at Oxford University, the author of award-winning books in the past, and now the author of the book that sparked my interest in having her on the show, Guru to the World, The Life and Legacy of Vivekananda. Swami Vivekananda, somebody I have looked at, whose life I have looked at to a far lesser degree than than Ruth has, but he was a a giant in the uh, modern history of global spirituality, and I'm eager to hear what Ruth learned in her uh, vigorous and rigorous research. Ruth, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. When I became aware that there was a biography of Swami Vivekananda published by a division of Harvard University Press, I assumed that the author would be a scholar of religion or South South Asian studies or uh, uh, something along those lines, Asian religions and so forth. You're a historian, and your specialty in the past has been European history. I did not expect that. So tell us first how you became interested enough in Vivekananda to have devoted what must have been an enormous amount of time and energy to the project. Thank you. Yes, um, it took me between eight and 10 years. (laughs) As you can see by the, the, the type yes. of book it is. <laughs> and, All 400 plus pages. Yeah, it's um, what happened was that um, I was by training a French historian. And I was years ago reading uh, Romain Roland, who's a famous French intellectual and pacifist. <laughs> and you pronounce it right. To me, it's always <laughs> Romain Roland. <laughs> no. <laughs> anyway, what happens is that um, he has a fantasy uh, that, that Gandhi will come to Europe and lead the anti-fascist struggle. 
which is an extraordinary vision. He is also the person responsible for giving Miraben, one of the people in Gandhi's entourage, a woman, the daughter of a British admiral, to Gandhi. It was this present between, quote, two great men. And she mm. was the present from, from west to east, which is a slightly tricky and, and yeah, disturbing exchange. Yeah. So she translates for Gandhi. Um, and they come together to Switzerland. He's living on a mountaintop. He's fled France. He's tried, he's tried to leave the world of, of uh, conflict from World War I. He's trying to mobilize people for peace. And he thinks that Gandhi might be willing to do it. Gandhi comes, but he isn't willing to do it, of course. He wants Europeans to, to manage their own affairs. And in the midst of that, he not only writes the first French book of introducing Gandhi to the Francophone world, calling him an Eastern Francis of Assisi, he also writes two books on Ramakrishna and Rolo. And we know these books. And it's reading those books that really astonished me, especially the one on Vivekananda, because in that book, he not only talks about Vivekananda, but he also introduces William James, mm -hmm. the great practitioner of psychology mm -hmm. and philosopher. And there's this haughty French intellectual and he's looking at it and he says, my God, this guy's smart. <laughs> it brought together my worlds. The worlds, I, after all, I'm an American. Um, it brought together this world of French history because it's through Roland that Freud gets a taste of Ramakrishna and Vivekananda. They have a, they have a correspondence about Indian ideas. And it also brings together my world in England where I now teach because um, I, Oxford is the post-imperial capital of the old empire. And what's extraordinary there is we have some of the most wonderful South Asian students. And it, it was my turn away from Europe was the recognition of this burgeoning population, the change and the shifts in uh, world politics, world geopolitics, and also the, their extraordinary ability to talk about Darwin, Marx, Freud, uh, and to know the greats of Indian literature and philosophy. And that made me think about Vivekananda. I thought, what does it mean to be ambidextrous, to, be, to have such perfect English, which is, a, which is a place of subjection? I mean, after all, he's, he has to go to the Scottish Missionary College yeah. uh, in Calcutta. And yet, it's this very facility that enables him to make this extraordinary trip to America and to appear at the World Parliament of Religions, where, you know, it takes a while, but he becomes what the Indians call a bit of a rock star. Yes. And, and given that he is not attached to any samaj or religious group that's famous, he has a monastery that's extremely unconventional. Um, he's uninvited. <laughs> The whole concatenation of events just fascinated me. Um, and I was thinking about, as a European historian, we're always talking about missionizing other parts of the world. Well, what happens when people from other parts of the world come to us? And that was the underpinning. I had been working on Albert Schweitzer, and I decided, mm -mm, I, mm -hmm. I didn't want to work on Albert Schweitzer. 
I had done some work on Albert Schweitzer's reverence for life and his relationship to Indian thought and ahimsa. Mm-hmm. Um, but I became fascinated by Vivekananda in this Bengali world. And I was so lucky to have so many Indians who are of extraordinary quality around to help me begin uh, thinking about it. Just uh, for listeners who uh, don't know the backstory, uh, the parliament of world religions that Ruth referred to took place in 1893 in Chicago. And uh, as, as Ruth mentioned, uh, we, we remember that parliament probably because of Vivekananda and the impact that he had. Uh, which came as quite a shock to the organizers <laughs> of the conference. Uh, and we, maybe we could talk about that a bit later. But, he, yes. you know, he left a lasting uh, legacy. And uh, oh, let, me, let me just jump right into that. I want to, I'll come back to uh, the context. But um, uh, when I was writing American Veda, it, it became very clear that uh, Vivekananda, you know, being the first of the illustrious gurus to come here, set a a template for the ones to follow, Mm. um, Yogananda and the others. And I always compare him to Jackie Robinson. (laughs) And and you're an American, so you know what I mean. And, you know, (laughs) he was the first to break certain barriers of ignorance and uh, stereotypes and so forth, and create a lasting legacy. Uh, He was a kind of spiritual Jackie Robinson in that respect. Uh, Could you just, for the sake especially of readers who are listeners who are not familiar with that legacy, tell us, you know, why he was important enough for you, a prominent historian, to uh, do this work? Um, I think what I would slightly disagree with you because he, he <laughs> does go against prejudice, but he can only enter into American discourse in some ways by confirming the cliches, mm. which was that the West was materialist yeah. and the East was spiritual. And that was a legacy of what in the 19th century was called Orientalism. It was the study of um Asian languages and Asian Asian sacred texts. So he what he does is on one level, he he has to present himself as something new, and he does. He arrives in Chicago wearing a um, uh, a, a scarlet coat and an orange turban, and this is not the. Orientalist vision of the, the wandering sadhu in his loincloth. Um, nor is it, it the vision of a, a Protestant minister in a black coat with a collar. So he creates an image. It's exotic. He plays with that image. When he isn't in that coat, he is actually in something more resembling a clerical garb so that people can recognize him. And he is constantly pulled and pushed by the need to be himself Indian, and at the same time, his, his mission, which is like Ramakrishna, to speak in terms that his audience would understand. And in many ways, he's a genius at that. Mm-hmm. Um, so because he goes to a place called Greenacre, where there's all these new thought people and alternative spirituality, 
And he watches what's going on and he sees Christian science and he sees spiritualism and he sees comparative religion. But mostly he thinks that although these are virtuous people, their metaphysics is dry and that they're not in the same spiritual league as many of the great, of somebody like Ramakrishna for certain. But nonetheless, he absorbs a lot of the language and the idiom so that he can converse with them while trying to retain the essence of his evolving Hinduism. Because it's not only in America that the Orthodox Christians didn't like him. In India, the Orthodox Hindus didn't like him. Right. So he was uh, fighting on two sides. And what's amazing about him is, you know, with somebody like Ramakrishna is a saint. Say um, a few words about Ramakrishna. Ramakrishna don't is, realize. Yes, is Vivekananda's guru. And Ramakrishna is considered an avatar. In other words, a God-man come to earth. In that way, not that different from Shiva or Krishna. Um, Vivekananda, Ramakrishna went through extraordinary uh, mystical trials. He insisted that the Atman or the, the divine soul that connected with Brahman, the absolute, he insisted that it was sexless. And so he exemplified this by being both a man and a woman. And at the same time, and so in many ways, he has a lot to tell us now when this debate about mm -hmm. gender fluidity is, has gained such significance. But even more importantly, he was against sex. So he, not sex, S-E-X, but S-E-C-T. And he said, what was at stake was experience. So he thought you should try and experience other people's ways, paths to God. And he even said, that he, and he said, they all lead to the absolute. And that included the religion of the so-called conquerors, which in India, of course, are the Mughals, the Muslims, and the Christians. So he, he opens up a path to Christianity and to Christ, but to Christ, but not to Christ, institutional Christianity. So he, Vivekananda is the student of an extremely charismatic and unusual guru on one level, but there are saints like him in, in Hindu history, Chaitanya, there are many. What makes Vivekananda unique is that he it, he globalizes Hinduism. He's the first one. He is the door opener. And and of course, the debate remains whether that's good or bad. Mm. You know, has he diluted it? Did he sanitize it? Did he homogenize it? There are always these questions. Um, but nonetheless, one of the things that I argue, as you saw in the book, that is that he's much more of a follower of Ram, I see more of a continuity between Vivekananda and Ramakrishna. And um, so that even Vivekananda, who's seen in India as what they call a man maker, uh, virile, you know, it's the, it's, it's very much been taken up by the militant right, the man making Vivekananda. When he's in America, they love him because he says he's a woman amongst women, <laughs> mm. you know? And they love his maternal care. Um, they love, uh, he connects a lot with a lot of very highbrow and uh, well-connected women. And one of the main concerns of the book is to show what they create together. 
This mm -hmm. is not just a book about, quote, a great man. I don't want to put him up in a pantheon with other great men, though I think he is one of the great and provocative figures of the 19th century. But I do want to suggest that um, without the women, he would not have been able to globalize Hinduism. And that's not just in the West, but also with a woman named Sharada Devi, who's Ramakrishna's wife, who is also considered a saint and who is an Orthodox Hindu woman, and yet who breaks taboos in India, which at the time were very strong. And she dines with the foreign women who come to visit her. And this is seen as an incredible sign. So it's also, um, we think of the 19th century in the West as the feminization of religion, all these missionaries, people going out. But these women, you'd think they should be missionaries, but they end up being anti-imperialists. Right. And so everything is inverted through this connection and through this new making of a, a global Vedantic culture. I want to come back to the women because um, even in my research, I realized how important they were. They really are. And not just with Vivekananda, but Yogananda, who I wrote a biography of and, and many of the others. They were the sort of hidden heroes of, 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 of this story. So let's come back to them. But before I don't want to leave uh, the, the 19th century context that gave us Vivekananda. Um, it, Bengal at that time, Calcutta, was a, a phenomenally interesting place. Very and and um, with, you know, uh, a lot of uh, rene uh, revolutionary uh, reforms going on in, in, uh, in the arts and politics and in, in religion and uh, intellectual ferment. Um, and young Vivekananda, when you look at his early life, as you did, um, seemed to be the one of the people least likely to end up as a disciple of a, a guru like Ramakrishna. He was a, a Western edu oh, British educated and, and highly intelligent and rational and skeptical young man. That's right. Tell us, tell us about that and the context that, were, you know, the historical context of his early years. I think to understand him, we have to realize what what the process of enforced westernization could do to people. So on one level, yes, he was reading Hume and Hamilton and Schopenhauer and uh, Spencer. On another level, he became what is called a Brahmo, which is a part of, um, people call it a reform movement. It certainly is a reform movement. They wanted to get, it's, it's famous for disposing of idols, which in the Hindu context means disposing of a lot of connectedness to images and the divine, and especially the notion of what they call darshan, which is the delight, the, the mystical and spiritual delight in beholding what is godly, what is divine. So Vivekananda seems like the perfect person um, to become a Brahmo, a lawyer like his father, 
But instead of that, like many people by the 1850s, 60s, 70s, after the Indian mutiny, when they begin to realize that they're very unlikely to get the civil liberties and the participation that they hope, um, they, they, they start to look back at their own traditions. And, and Ramakrishna enables him to discover those traditions in a way that is um, very open. And as I said, has charismatic connection. And I think that Ramakrishna is so important to him because as he says all the time, Ramakrishna loved me like no one else, not even my parents. Mm-hmm. And this, and I argue in the book that it's this transformational love, which for Vivekananda also brings spiritual reconciliation. He's able to re-access types of Hindu belief and worship that he had never thought he had disposed of, which is a spiritual reconciliation of, of, of the greatest kind. So that's, the, and I think that the whole book is about the arc of these relationships. It starts with Vivekananda and Ramakrishna. And the end of the book is with his key British disciple, a woman named Margaret Noble, who follows him to India. And you see from her perspective, what India is like and what it's Mm -hmm. like to try to Hinduize yourself. When you follow Vivekananda to America, you see what it's like for him to try and to be a Westerner. So that is the arc of the book. The book is about not only the ideas, but um, emotional and spiritual connections and and their impact on what happens. And in adapting to his time in America, which was compared to some of the later gurus, very brief. And and also at a time, you know, prior to, uh, you know, jet travel and mass media his impact was such that it it showed how Westerners could be Hinduized in a sense and and, uh, how to adapt those traditional teachings from India to Western life, which which raises the question, um, his early uh, exposure to the Brahmos, there was a, a kind of reconfiguring of the Vedanta tradition uh, at that time. Could you could you explain? I mean, him, he's often credited with modernizing uh, or reforming uh, a lot of the ancient teachings and bringing them into the modern era. Is that an accurate uh, dis- depiction of him and, and the influences on him? It's accurate that he changes things, but I wouldn't like, I don't like these terms of revivalism, modernizing, mm. because it suggests that the first suggests that it's a reaction and a, re- a return to something that is idealized. Because, of course, we all know anybody who's been to India or talked to Indians is the range of traditions. That, that, that inhabit and, and live under the Hindu brand, the tree uh, mean that you can't talk about Hinduism in any shorthand way. Yeah. The Thanks other for reason, saying that. Yes, well, you know that. Yeah, <laughs> then yeah. the other thing is that um, he, he changes, but he, and there, he does bring intense innovation. And that's why he's disliked by Orthodox Hindus, because he 
he emphasizes seva, service. And what he wants, it, he tries to take the ancient wisdom of Shankara, a great Indian sage. Um, he advocates a union between the Atman, which is the thing that is constantly reincarnated, the essence, the subtle essence within each individual, and Brahman, which is absolute, the absolute. But for him, it's formless. He doesn't reject images, but he's worried about symbolism and images because he doesn't like sex. And he also thinks that if you're going to have S-E-C-T-S. Exactly. <laughs> um, if you're going to have a universal connections, then you have to get rid of all these divisions that, that symbols bring. And in India, it was very important for, that people began to see a certain vision of Hinduism, but it also gave a religious um, impetus to ways of asserting oneself against some of the terrible abuses of imperialism. So instead of just a transcendental search for you know, a wandering monk, the, his monks began to be very active, like many other religious groups in India, in fighting the famine. And what we don't realize is from 1896, right into the 20th century, 12 million Indians die. The famine is colossal. And the, there's recurring famines. The, the British keep on exporting the grain from India and people are dying of hunger and it's brutal. And also there's plague. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he goes into Calcutta and he, he gives a plague manifesto because he's trying, he's trying to get people to think about how um, the essence of what he considers to be Vedanta can be deployed. And he thinks it's, you work better when you're utterly detached, but you maintain, you maintain that detachment of, of a, a Swami or a guru, but you engage in the world. And this is a very, quite a new vision. Yeah. It's, it's, going on, it's going on in many places. It's, you know, um, and everyone says, well, he, he's taken Western views. That, he's taken that from the West. Well, he, he, he cites traditions within Hinduism. Yeah. And I think it's very important for us to realize that in the Abrahamic religion, certainly charity and service has, uh, it, it's, it's part of the doctrine. But in Hinduism, there were massive networks of almsgiving, support. So it's not that he's working for nothing. Right. And he's right. also trying to build alliances with householders, people who are not monks or wanderers. And trying to export or this kind of thinking to the wider world, not just for, for monks. In my experience, most of the accounts of lives of uh, spiritual luminaries, uh, including the gurus from India, are either um, hagiographic or is it hagiographic? I forget. Either is fine. Either, okay. <laughs> I don't they're, know. They're, they're <laughs> attempts to idealize and uh, place on high pedestals the revered figure. Yeah. Uh, or their attempts to debunk and discredit exactly. 
And um, I found that when I was researching Yogananda's life, and I said, I, I just want to write a, an accurate tale of the human being. That's right. Uh, and and I, it seems to me that you did the same. You, you've humanized us of a sainted figure, but in a very respectful and, and, and almost reverential way. Uh, and so I appreciate that. And in your preface, you, you say that, I'm quoting you, some readers will find my account too celebratory and others will find it too critical. Well, all I can say is welcome to the club. And <laughs> has, that has that turned out to be true? Not so far. Um... I mean, what's happening is that uh, Vivekananda, he, because he spoke so differently to different audiences, the the ungenerous approach is to say, gotcha, you see what he said? <laughs> and mm -hmm. of course, he did. And some of those, those ideas we find horrendous. Um, some of the, you know, his, his stance, for example, against widow remarriage, it's hard for us to understand. But for the time, his harsh stance against child marriage was progressive. So I'm an historian. Um, and so my job is to try and bring the reader with his or her imagination to a world that is not our own. And to accept that there may be things that offend us. And there is nothing. And what I like about Vivekananda is that unlike Ramakrishna, who is seen as an avatar and Sharada Devi, who's a saint, Vivekananda never, never saw himself in those, that light. I mean, he is vastly human. He, he smokes cigarettes, which gets him into trouble with his uh, devotees in uh, America and especially in Britain. They think, how can a spiritual person smoke cigarettes? <laughs> Even at a and, time when everybody did. Well, but also it's it's a fascinating story because, you know, he he that's where he diverges, you know, yeah. and also he was sick all the time and it was very hard for him because people who were interested in Christian science and mind control and suggestive therapy thought that he should find a way to be healthier. And, and that he should because he's of high spiritual stature. He exactly. should be able to. And he ate a lot. And sometimes he couldn't eat because he had terrible diabetes and he's struggling all the time to find things that don't make him sick. Mm -hmm. um, and so, again, what's interesting is the censoriousness mm -hmm. of many of his of the Westerners who don't think that he doesn't fit into the image of what a holy man should be. And of course, when he goes back to India, there are so many uh, rights and customs around pollution and purity, that he falls foul of them too. And he talks about it. And he says, this is, I, he keeps on saying he wants an end to don't touchism, which is a very interesting thing. And he's talking about excess ceremonials and all kinds of rules. And he actually even says, you've got more and more because you're wretches. He uses the word wretches mm. because you're, you're subject. You don't know how to emerge from these these things that are cushioning you in, in excess ritual. But he's also saying at that moment, um, untouchability isn't right. Otherwise he wouldn't have used the word, I, I believe. Um, and my Indian friends agree with me. Mm -hmm. um, 
And the fact that he dies so young is we don't know what he would have done. I mean, he is open to other religions, but he does criticize Islam, but he criticizes it in a fraternal way. And he basically says, brothers fight, you know, and that's a problem. Um, but now some people say that, you know, he wanted a Hindu nation. Well, as you can see from, if you actually read what he says, that is not what he says. <laughs> so um, it's very interesting to me um, how people pick and choose. Um, and I think that, you know, people like Gandhi are also the people that way. And yeah. the fact is these people were not sitting as professors writing a systematic philosophy. They were on the go. They were on the hoof. They're responding to audiences. And also they change with time. And they're multidimensional like the rest of us. People go on journeys. They change. What surprised you the most, if, if any one thing did, when you were uh, doing your research? Uh, um, there were two things that really surprised me. The first was my incapacity right into the fourth year of the research. And I got, um, I got tearful, actually. I could not even grasp the beginnings of Advaita Vedanta. Uh -huh. yeah, it really, you know, as a J person of Jewish origin and a monotheistic tradition, I'd written a book on the miracles and apparitions at Lourdes. I'd done work on um, Mariology and Trinitarianism, but this I could not get. And it mm -hmm. took me so long. Um, and then finally, it started, I, it was, I mean, who understands Advaita Vedanta? It's, you know, it's, a, it's a very, very difficult thing. And then right when I was despairing, I moved over into something where I could actually write about it, I thought, in a sensible way. And that was very painful, actually. And the other thing that I found remarkable was the way these very high metaphysical theories could still be attached to wonderful stories, mythology, mm. Radha and Krishna. I mean, we separate out in the West the story of the chosen people and Jesus from Greek mythology. Mm. But what's interesting here is that, again, in, within this vision of um, choosing your own path, you can come to understanding through an immensely long tradition. So. I found actually the stories of Radha Krishna, um, the Gita, the Mahabharata, the story of Arjuna on the battlefield, um, the parables, um, when he was trying to explain that we can't know the cosmic meaning of things and we have to see God in the terrible. He gives an example of fire. Well, of course, fire, when it cooks your food is good. But uh, fire, when it burns down your house, is terrible. And it was sometimes the simplicity of those aphorisms mm, <laughs> mm. that really helped me. <laughs> and the other thing I found amazing, this is number three, actually, is how he really did con uh, contribute to the debate over um, rapport. You know, what's the relationship? Uh, you know, it... Between a guru and disciple, how do they connect? Uh, 
the channel. Well, people tend to think of that as separate from the discussion on suggestion and the unconscious Christian science. But what I try to show is that they're all operating within a common context and Vivekananda is contributing at a very high level. Hence why William James keeps on um, uh, footnoting him in varieties of religious experience. There's a sub rosa debate going on and um, it's a very interesting one. You know? Since you mentioned it, um, you mentioned a few things I was going to ask you about. Uh, and so we're going to do this out of order. That's fine. <laughs> out of my order. Um, yeah. Tell us about his relationship with the, with the uh, eminent philosopher, psychologist, William James. They meet uh, in Cambridge when Vivekananda shows up in, in, uh, and William James is a, an eminence at Harvard. Uh, and they had a friendship of, of sorts. Um, and he shows up in William James's most famous book, at least yeah. by lay standards, uh, the varieties of religious experience. Tell us about that. And you, you refer in the book to a debate between them. Mm. What was that about? And what was the relationship like? Well, it, I would say one of the things about James was he was very, very, very... Uh, open and interested. Uh, I wouldn't say this is a friendship at all. Mm. They meet each other at Sarah Bull's house. Again, it's a woman who facilitates all this. Sarah Bull is going to be the one who gives the money for the buildings at Bellarmat, his monastery. So this is, this just gives a sense of the kind of connections that they're operating in. And James is very interested in Eastern religions because he's working with people like Royce, um, another, another philosopher, and they're all, James isn't, but the other ones are Sanskritists. So he is familiar with this. Um, well, of course, James says is that he's going to dash away dogma He's going to dash away institutional religion. What's really important is pragmatism. What it means for the individual, the subjective individual, for the subjective feelings of the individual. That's what he's going to talk about. He's not going to say whether there really is a God or isn't a God. And this, of course, is the basis of much of American spirituality. We don't, we, 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 people always go around in America. My friends always say, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so that, and that's that's a Jamesian view. It's profound. It's everywhere, and it's said very simply, but it means a lot in the American context, as we all know. Okay, but when in the book he also says about about Vivekananda Hinduism that it's a sumptuosity of security, and what he means by that is that Hindus really just want transcendence. And it's exactly the, the, the common cliche of Hindus as metaphysical, withdrawing from the world, searching for God, not having enough, quote, character to engage with real world problems. And for Vivekananda, it's just more of the same. Now, the Americans want um, his Raja Yoga, the first English manual book on Raja, to be prefaced by James. James says yes, and of course doesn't do it. 
And mm -hmm. Vivekananda doesn't care. He Why didn't, didn't James do it? Nobody knows. But uh, James yeah. hated to offend people. And it's very, very interesting because on the one hand, he says that publicly in his book. But if you read his correspondence, he has read Max Muller's sayings of Ramakrishna. Max mm -hmm. Muller is a famous Orientalist, uh, Sanskritist. Ramakrishna's, uh, Vivekananda has given him all the information about Ramakrishna. So the sayings of Ramakrishna come out. This is how the West knows about Ramakrishna from through Max Muller. And um, when he reads uh, Ramakrishna, he takes from him, and you see it in his private correspondence, the idea that there may be some connection between the soul and the absolute. And it's that he uses the same kind of words as Ramakrishna. He calls it the mother sea of consciousness. Mm -hmm. And it's a maternal image. Ramakrishna was very concerned with maternalism, a vision of the mother as omnipotent. Um, he describes Advaita, the connection between the divine and, and everyone and, and the human soul as a salt doll that falls into the earth, into the sea, and then becomes part of it. And it's this oceanic feeling that Roland talks about that, um, that James also picks up when he talks about the mother sea of consciousness. But you can see in his private correspondence, he's unclear. He doesn't know what to do. Does he want to stay a scientist? Does he want to go on to this more, this more, this is very difficult for him to adjudicate his own inner world. And he's the son of a Swedenborgian minister. So he's already coming at it from a slightly different perspective. Now you just, um... And I want to come back to the role of women, so make sure I do. But yes. you, just, you just mentioned uh, James's uh, struggle with himself as a, a man of uh, science and rationality. And yeah. and in, in your preface, you say that uh, Vivekananda raised the question of the relationship between science and religion in That's new right. ways. What, what, do you, right. what do you mean by that? Well, I think he, what he does uh when he goes especially west is that he of course from the moment he arrives at the parliament he says there is not only one way to redemption so he rejects that this that everyone must come to god through jesus so that's against christian exclusivism so that's mm -hmm. very important the idea that there are many paths and he quotes the gita then on the other side, he reads a lot of science um, and he's fascinated like everyone else with evolution. What we don't realize is of course that at this stage, the, the idea of natural selection has still not been widely or totally accepted mm. by scientists. And he, like Darwin's co-discoverer says, uh, I can't believe that natural selection works on the higher moral faculties and intelligence. And instead he turns to Patanjali, Patanjali, and he says, I think that evolution has been discovered before, but I'm sure that these scientists will help us confirm many Vedantic truths. And I think that's what he truly believed, 
But I also think he understood, as a very clever man, that scientific polemic could be used against people of color. So he would say, um, survival of the fittest, the ideology of the survival of the fittest is just a way to excuse people's brutality. That's what he mm. said. Mm. He just mm. used that word. And recently I saw a quotation that I hadn't used in my book where he rails against the British for mm -hmm. killing Aboriginal peoples mm. and Australia and the Americans, the Indians. And he says, look at this brutality. Look at this. So it's very interesting. He comes at it from a very different perspective. He, he feels compassion for black people in America, but he's also so concerned with his own respectability and it, that he doesn't want to be put in the same category because mm. it's, it's very, very complex for him because it, that's why he's showing the rational side because everyone talks about Indians as heathens. So he keeps on saying, look at me, am I a heathen? <laughs> you know, right. and of course, he has good cause to say that. And yet at the same time, you know, um, he does, he can't, of course, identify with black people, because it's a different, he, he can't go into hotels in the South, they yeah. won't let him in. So it's very, very tricky for him. Right. And um, it would have been dangerous. I, I consider him like uh, Yogananda as well given the time frame that they were here, it was very brave to speak out against colonialism the way he did. I mean, he railed against the missionaries. Oh, and, did um, he ever? Yeah. You know, that, that was, uh, you know, flirting with danger, you know, to, to be that outspoken. So, uh, you know, he was, a, he, he was very aware of the world even, uh, and its ills. And, uh, didn't hold back. No, I agree. The the role of women, which is a, to me, you know, I always like to come back to practical um, uh, lessons to be learned from these historical figures, and uh, he's evidence of how a person could be a, a great spiritual leader and very much engaged in <laughs> with the affairs of the world, mm -hmm. uh, which is an ongoing sort of debate the role of women mm -hmm. in his life in Vivekananda's life there are first well of course family and all that but uh Sarada Devi is uh as a spiritual luminary in his life then there's all the uh women uh who he encounters in the west Sarah Bull and the others who essentially make things happen for mm -hmm. you know, uh, for him, uh, without them, we probably we wouldn't know of Vivekananda. I agree. They opened the doors. They wrote the checks. They they you know did a lot of things. And then, famously, there's uh, Margaret Noble, aka Sister Nivedita. Tell us about the role of women. <laughs> we don't have that much time, but and I know it's an important thing, but tell us about it and how important that was. Well, all the things you say are absolutely correct. One of the, th by the way, I think it's very interesting that he never thought of himself at the same level of, as, as, as Sharada Devi. I mean, she, you know, he, he sees her as, uh, he wouldn't go to America without her permission. Yeah, and, um, so that's that's very important. Um, 
and it 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 goes against the image of of the strict Johnny who did, who who or intellectual or she he he understood her intuitive intelligence and he always admired it. With the women, what's going on is not merely that they're the enablers, but they're also the translators. You know, it's through the, him that he gets to understand what's the difference between Methodism and Calvinism. He's witnessing the emergence of Christian science. Every single one of his close devotees started off as a Christian scientist. Mm. And that's very important because when he first encounters them, he thinks they're kind of sort of like Vedantins, he actually says, because they don't accept the illusion that there are different egos in different bodies. You know, and this is this is fascinating. Yeah, he was able yeah. to make these connections, but without their instruction, he wouldn't have been able to do it. As time goes on, he's actually quite upset that he can't find male sannyasins in America. Mm. He wants, you know, in, in, in India has an enormous pool of monks and novices, by, even by the time he dies. But when he's in the West, there's that whole triangulation of, you know, is this guru too much with the women? And when he says, I'm a woman amongst women, the men, you know, find that very disconcerting because <laughs> they want, you know, um, even though, and, and his, uh, so on one level, you could argue, they share spiritual preoccupations, him and the women, and they share some resentments, but it's more than that. They share um, a conviction about um, the possibilities of promoting world peace and change, but also dialogue. And I think if there's anything about the book that I really want to emphasize is that, you know, many of these interactions were disappointing. People misunderstood one another, um, but it's all we got, really. It's all <laughs> trying and what's amazing with sister Nivedita she goes she follows him and of course she's the the business of Hinduizing herself it seems that she even lives in a period of Purda you know he wants her to be a Hindu woman and then he realizes that he he needs that shower to Debbie he needs something else and so she starts to attach these Vedantic ideas to new trends in Western culture, whether that's science or sociology or art. Though I do think it's very hard for us to separate out Vivekananda from her because he, mm. she in many ways creates the legacy. Mm. And she, she, her, their partnership raises the question again of why it was that so many Indians have Western women for their message. So Gandhi had Miraban and Aurobindo had Miral Fassa and um, uh, we have Annie Besant and we have, you know, uh, Nivedita. And I think that the reason is, is that these, part of the reason is, is that when they become Indian, she, she you know, she, Margaret Noble rejects her Britishness ultimately because she's so appalled by the plague, by the famine. Uh, in rejecting it, she also, as an example, demonstrates to the world that Indians are not at fault. It's, it's, mm -hmm. 
you know. And so I think it's very, and also he gets her to get up and speak on, you know, the most uh, important mother goddess, which many people think of as a terrible, you know, idol, Kali. He gets her to get up and speak about that. And then he doesn't speak about it. She does. Interesting. Yeah. So when you get to that part of the book, you'll see, and it's very important to him that she explain um, the cosmic significance of Kali. And it's important to her because she's grown up with a patriarchal vision of God and to have a feminine figure of this mm. dynamism and power really amazes her. And she finds it very important for her political radicalism. And to this day, a lot of uh, Hindus, a lot of Indians, uh, she's held in great reverence because of her role in the independence movement. She and Annie Besant, uh, it's quite a phenomenon that yeah, I know. turned yeah. on the homeland of Central Yeah, they're, op they're open. Um, and I think it's a very interesting thing because they see her as one of their own. <laughs> yeah, it's fascinating. Ruth, fascinating. Um, how did doing the research and digging in so deeply, how, how if at all, did it, change you? Did it change your uh, spirituality or sense of uh, your own uh, place in the universe or, or any of that? Well, on a more mundane level, it, it completely shifted my intellectual horizons. Mm. You can imagine going from European history to this and trying to connect back to America. Um, I, and it, that was extremely enriching and very terrifying process because academics mm. are specialists and uh, people thought I was people were some people were, were very positive but many people thought I was nuts I would and, imagine yeah especially in well, that you, you've been, you become a religious fanatic of some sort and you're yes right yeah <laughs> uh, I and if, and I I've written the book I hope with certain generosity but I'm not a devotee at all right Right. On the other hand, um, what I did find remarkable in the Hindu ideas and helped me tremendously is this idea of, of loving God or the good in the terrible. And he has a fantastic metaphor. They're, they were wonderful with parables and metaphors of a, a pail of milk with burnt cork in it. So that how can you discern the difference between good and bad unless you have some possibility of doing so. I also think that the Indians were very important, these Indian speculations of spirituality in Western discussions and Indian discussions of the importance of the mother in psychoanalysis, ultimately. The importance and of? The mother or the ah. maternal, the uterine, the pre-verbal. Um, which is something that Ramakrishna displays. And Freud didn't quite understand it when Roland tries to explain it to him when they talk about the oceanic experience. Um, but I think that that's all of these things were simply remarkable to me. But above all, what was remarkable was that we, we think we live in a globalized world. Certainly the world is a, a village. Vivekananda is often portrayed as a cosmopolitan. Well, I think the pandemic has put paid to a lot of the simplistic visions of how we can connect. But what I love about this story is 
it, it acknowledges the possibility of connection as well as the disappointment of disruption and not understanding one another. And I think mm. that's a very important message. Speaking of which, in my, in my experience in modern day India, uh, Vivekananda is a kind of national hero. Mm. You see his image and his name on you know, the buildings and uh, institutions of various kinds, especially educational ones. Yes, um, lots and, of schools. Yeah. Um, and politically, um, he seems to be one of those figures who, like the American founding fathers, who, who can be used for any purpose. And so uh, people, everybody calls him one of their own, and they use him as an exemplar for political points of view on every, <laughs> every end of the spectrum. What can we learn from that? And, and am I correct in that? You're absolutely correct. I mean, as I say in the very beginning of my book, there are many people in Bengal who came to Marxism, socialism through Vivekananda, which I think is extraordinary because now many people, it's all, he's often seen as uh, an inspiration for, for right-wing Hindu right. nationalism. Yeah. Then there's the whole middle ground of, um, you know, this spiritual universalism where people sometimes think he was right and sometimes think he was wrong. So what can we say about that? What does it leave us with? And that's where I go back to the fact that he dies at 39 because mm. we don't know where he would have gone. Um, so that's why he's so easy to pick and choose from. Mm. I mean, with Gandhi, Gandhi and here, the same generation, but Gandhi lasts till 1948. Yeah. And Vivekananda dies in 1902, before Swadeshi and the partition of Bengal. So what we have left is the, these extraordinary provocations on both sides, where he's provoking, demanding that people speak out, think outside the box. And, it's, and he's an uncomfortable figure. And that's why I want to, I wanted to work on him. It wasn't because he scolds. He's encouraging. He's so many things. And it's that uh, provocative thing where a man says what he thinks. It's what you said, the bravery of speaking that I wanted to investigate and to see its impact in different contexts. Final question uh, to bring it back to the practical for listeners, because most of my listeners will be people who are uh, uh, very dedicated to their own spiritual path and have what you call in the book, spiritual ambition yes. as, a, as a sort of motivating factor. Yeah. What, <clears throat> in uh, the short amount of time, can you say, what can people take from your book that I will think, influence their own lives? I think that what they should take is the message about following one's own path. Um, and I think this is so important for Vivekananda, but he didn't, he was not, a too, he did not like uh, a vision of, of spiritual consumerism. That's what he said was going on in America. He called it a shopkeeper's religion. Right. What, uh, well, it was something that Ramakrishna also said, 
about Indian religion. So it, it, the critique went in both places. But what's important there is to understand he admired perseverance. Mm. And, um, and, and he also admired uh, a rational approach to these spiritual uh, paths, but at the same time, to undertake them with sincerity and generosity. So it's that he keeps on going on. You need the heart of a bhakta, of a devotee, but you need also brains. Yeah. You, know, you need love, but you need brains. And it's that combination, again, that uh, is very provoking. I mean, remember, again, he has to fight against uh, imperialism and muscular Christianity. So he comes back with a vision of you know, strength. He's very concerned with strength and fortitude. But what a lot of people don't realize is that he makes a distinction between strength and force. Mm -hmm. And of course, we all know that there's a difference. I mean, force for him is missionizing, is imperialism, muscular Christianity. Uh, strength is about being able to marshal that energy and to recognize it in others, that di divine thing in others. Um, and that's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> right. Yeah. Thank you, Ruth. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Um, I'm, we could have gone on for another hour, but another time, perhaps. Again, perhaps. everybody, uh, <clears throat> Ruth's book is Guru to the World, The Life and Legacy of Vivekananda. It's quite a life, and it's uh, an important legacy, one we can all learn from. Thank you all for listening. Uh, please subscribe so you don't miss a show. Tell your friends about it, and email me with your suggestions. Uh, if you have people you think I should interview, if you have ideas for how we can do it better, let me know. Subscribe to my mailing list at my website, and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Ruth. Thank you.